God is good. Amen. Thank you, praise team, for leading us in. Thank you for being in attendance tonight. You're looking good. You may be seated in the presence of God. What a day, and I'm happy to report to you that in spite of waking up this morning and not having any water in the hotel at all because lines had burst, we moved to another hotel, and I am happy to report that I do not stink this evening. I smell better. <laughs> it's good to be back with you tonight and want to thank you for receiving us in this morning in the service and what a great time we had personally being here, not only at One Life, but also with your pastors, bishops, Brian and Renee Matthews, who are loved across this country and are affectionate in our heart. We love and appreciate you and your family. I uh, could not find Destiny this morning uh, until we got to the restaurant, and I said, well, she even here? And, you know, when you are a PK, you serve everywhere, every time there's a need, and you're just uh, all over the place. And I see you tonight, Destiny, and we love you, and we love you, Jordan and Michaela, and appreciate you so very much, and thank God for all your team and all of the congregation that's here tonight. Everybody say, hey. hey. If you were here this morning, you realize that my hey back to you and your hey to me is that we are partners together. So look down your row and say, hey. hey. <laughs> I want to read tonight, if God will help me, out of Genesis chapter 32. Beverly and I are just so uh, appreciative of what God is doing in this season of our life. And I shared with you that this morning that we are uh, grandparents of a three-year-old grandson and a one-year-old uh, granddaughter. And so our life has taken on a whole new meaning. And I don't know if I shared this with you, but I do remember that uh, before we became grandparents, that we would see people who were grandparents. And they'd always be running up wanting to show us another picture of their grandbaby breathing um, or just staring and and you would in your mind after after 25 pictures you were like here they come again and I'm happy to report we have turned into those people we take pictures all the time and love our grandchildren and love this season that God has provided us We've been pastoring for 23 years. It feels like that in the same church, even though it's been the same church, it's almost been like three different congregations. As time has brought seasonal change, shifts. In one, in one respect, I look back and say, thank God we're not the same church we were when we started. It was a very closed-minded, we started with 22 people, and uh, had a revival in a few months and lost 10. And so we had to really cut a workout from scratch, if you will. And that's what they used to call church planting, cut a workout from scratch. And uh, they didn't always equip you or resource you. They just said, if I did it, you can do it. Go on now. And you went out there and you just started trying to do something for God. And now we are in a dispensation before the coming of the Lord where there are more resources available, more covenant relationships than ever. And I want to say this to you 
as a hey-hey, as a partner in this house, that it is vital that you understand the breadth and length of what covenant relationship is. Covenant relationship is I will talk with you and not about you. I won't entertain conversations about anybody unless they're in the room. Amen. And you don't know how valuable covenant relationship is until you need it and don't have it. But when you have it, hold on to it. When you can be in covenant relationship and be able to walk the rest of your journey in faith and have that covering and that strength, um, it will absolutely change the dynamics of your faith and change the way that you look at people and how you live your life. I want to speak tonight, if God will help me, on this thought, the reign of grain. It may not all make sense till I get to the end, but if the Lord will help me, we'll bring revelation. If he doesn't, then it was because you all weren't receiving. No, I'm teasing. Would you just lift your hand and say, Lord, I know your word is anointed, but God, we ask you to give me a hearing ear, Lord, that I may receive your word. Lord, let it be, let it be meat and potatoes to my, to my spirit. Let it be strength and fortitude. Let it be substance to my journey. And God, I pray that you would do a work in me so that you can ultimately do a work through me. So I yield myself to receive the word. And all of one life say amen. Everybody say the rain of grain. I want to talk about one of my favorite Bible heroes tonight, if I can, for a few minutes. And his name is Joseph. But I want to backpedal a little bit and talk about the generation that he came from. And every one of us that are here tonight, we came from some people. Some people we don't want to claim. And other folk that we could just want to broadcast who our pedigree is and who we came from. And my daddy was this and my grandpa was that. And we like to talk like that. But we don't always tell the stuff that's hidden. And I know that we're very, uh, a very private people, that we don't always tell all the stuff. But I would dare say that all of you that are in here, including myself, we have some stuff we probably don't want the rest of the world to know about our family. <laughs> I got two yeses out of that, I'll take it. But I do know that sometimes we walk in dysfunction before we come to function. And you don't know what health is until you come out of sickness. And when you get healthy, then you look back and say, that was not healthy. And you don't hate on the people that brought you out or brought you in. You just realize they were probably repeating patterns that they had endured themselves. Can I get an amen from somebody? Look down your row like you're a Pentecostal preacher and say, amen. I want you to understand the weight of what I'm talking about. All of us have a history. All of us have a past. And our desire of God is that we're not past-possessed, but future-focused. That God could take us into our new beginning. And the new season we talked about this morning, where God says, I trust you with this net-breaking blessing. You can receive it. So I want to talk first about Jacob, which was the father of Joseph. Write his name down in your journal and understand that most of our names have a meaning. 
and have a, a definition. My grandson, his name is Liam, and he is named after me. My first name is William, and my middle name is Russell. And I don't know why my mom and dad always called me Russell. There ain't nobody in our family named Russell. Finally, my dad said, well, I had a friend in the military. His name was Russell. I said, that's how you named me? But my first name is William, and there's not anybody in my family that I know of that was named William. But my daughter and son-in-law did not let me down. They named him Liam, which is a derivative of William. Names have meaning. Jacob's name, he lived up to, by the way, as the son of Isaac and Rebekah means surplanter, deceiver. Now, if your name is Jacob here tonight, no, we are not picking on you. But everybody's name means something, especially when you reach into the archives of history of Scripture and you see that most people who had a strong name lived up to their name. Amen. And so we find that Jacob had a twin brother by the name of Esau. As the story would unfold, his juvenile, his adolescent years, and on up into adulthood, he would, Jacob would steal two things. He was a surplanter and a deceiver, and he stole his brother's birthright, and he stole his blessing. Now, how many know that if your brother or sister stole from you, what your mom and dad had wrote in the will for you, and maybe that has happened to somebody, that it's not a pleasant experience. And it wasn't just that Jacob did that, but Je the apple didn't fall far from the tree. His mother was also a conniver. Sometimes it runs in the family. His mother connived with him. And we all have some levels of dysfunction in our home. He went on the run from his brother Esau, and the Bible said for over 20 years they did not see each other, where they were distanced because of the dysfunction. You know, there are some people that can't even get together at the family reunion anymore because they've had a falling out with so-and-so. Can I get a smile? And even though that Jacob and Esau hadn't saw each other for some 20 years, God did not leave Jacob like he found him. God changed his name. I'm giving you a summary where God would change his name from surplanter, deceiver, Jacob to a name called Israel. And if you would allow me to just kind of inject that Israel could also mean and does mean not only will God persevere, but my God will prevail. That Israel was a name that you put on somebody that changed their very essence from being deceiver to God will prevail. And how many know it's important to know what your name means? Go with me to Genesis 32, and I want to read a passage of Scripture before we get into the meat and the potatoes of this word. And the Bible said in Genesis 32, verse 22, And he rose up that night and took his two wives and his two woman servants. Somebody say, uh-oh. Uh, he's already in trouble. He's got more than one wife. I don't know how you could handle more than one wife. Smile at me. 
And not only does he have two wives, he has two women servants and his 11 sons, and he passed over the ford Jabbok. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And there wrestled a man with him under the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hath power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him, Well, what's your name? And he said, Wherefore is it that thou doest ask my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the place of that Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. This is the place where the angel of the Lord had plushed, touched the side of his thigh and pushed him out of shape so that he walked like a different man. God changed his name and God changed his walk. And therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew that shrank. I don't have time to unpack every nugget in this passage. But write this down when God changes your name. Despite his sin, God blessed him. Despite his past, it did not define him. Despite his dysfunction, God elevated him. God changes our names for a purpose. When he changed Abram and added his name into it, the Ha of God. He added his name into Abram's name till Abram then became Abraham. Saul had a name changed. He would become Apostle Paul. Simon had his name changed to Peter. When God changes your name, it indicates that something new has happened or something is about to happen in your life. Perhaps God is shifting things to bring you into a new relationship or into a character quality or a new phase of life. We see that today when a woman will take on the name of her husband in that matrimony. It represents a change in her life. Amen? It represents that there's a shift that has happened. And so God will give you a new name. Say amen. So like Peter, Jesus doesn't see what you are. He sees what you shall be. When he says you shall no longer be called uh, Simon Peter, a Cephas, a stone, you shall, be called, uh, uh, you shall now be called Peter, and I'm going to build you 
and create a following of rockness. In other words, thou art Peter, and upon this rock, upon the confession that came out of your mouth, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will now establish and build my church that the gates of hell cannot prevail. Because God saw in Peter what he shall be, not what he was. God saw in Jacob what he shall be, and not what he was. He was a surplanter. He was a deceiver. He was known by his family for having these characteristics and these traits. So regardless of who you are, God knows us no matter what we are going through or what we've been. He loves me enough to not leave me like he found me. He loves me enough to say it no matter how you were raised and what dysfunction you came from, what part of the city or the country you came from, I'm not going to leave you like I found you. Isn't it the word of God where Paul would say that we might be confident in this very thing that he who hath begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, God's not going to leave me like he found me. So when I trust Jesus for forgiveness of sin, who is the name above every name, the only name, when I become a new creation in Christ Jesus and I now become a Christian, a follower of the Lord, he gives me a shift of purpose and he gives me a shift, a shift of direction in my life. And that's why the Bible teaches us even in the book of Revelation that God says to his church I have will give you a new name written on a stone which nobody knows save he that read it and I will write the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem which comes down from God out of heaven and you will receive my new name so there is something powerful about your name lean over and tell somebody who you are what your name is and I don't mean your nickname, Pookie or Boo Boo, but your real name. Jacob had a lot of sons. And the Bible gives us a description, and I'll give you some of this on the screen tonight. He had two wives, Leah and Rachel. And he had uh, two maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpha. Now I want you to catch this. Two wives, Leah and Rachel two maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpha. How many know he's already in trouble? He's already in trouble. But when you go through the list of how many children he has and who they are mothered by, Reuben, who is the son of Leah, his name means, see, a son. Simeon, who is also the son of Leah, his name means hearing. Levi, also a son of Leah, his name means joined or attached. Judah, who is also a son of Leah, his name means Yah be praised. Dan, whose name means judge, is a daughter of Bil a son of Bilhah, which is Rachel's servant. All of these attempts of having children that all of these women, four women, are involved in the 12 children. Naphtali, whose name means my resting, or my, uh, my resting, is also a child of Bilhah. 
Gad, who means troop, invader, good fortune, is uh, another maidservant, Zilpha, Leah's servant. So now you don't only have Rachel and Leah in the mix, uh, now you have the maidservants that are in the mix. Oh, it's, a, it's, quite a, it's quite a motley crew of family members trying to remember who's related to who and who is brought in. Then you have Asher, whose name means happy. And he is also the daughter of the servant of Leah named Zilpha. Issachar, man of hire, son of Leah. Zebulun, dwelling son of Leah. And then you get to Joseph, whose name means increaser, the son of Rachel. And then there would come along Benjamin, son of my right hand, also the child of Rachel. Now I want you to catch this. There are 12 eventually that come to birth and, and bear in the lineage of Jacob who had gone from being Jacob the deceiver and surplanter to now becoming Israel that God would prevail with him that all of his sons had the same daddy. All of them had the same father. But although God had changed Jacob's name to Israel, I present to you that there was still a little Jacob in him. Although you're saved, there are still times your old man tries to crop its head up. Can all the spiritual people say yes? Although I'm a new creation, if I'm not careful and haven't crucified my flesh, the old me will try to crop his head up <laughs> and try to make a show. So although God had changed his name, there was still a little Jacob in Israel. Therefore, the sons also had a little bit of Jacob in them too. That's why we say that the apple really don't fall far from the tree because we act a lot like our ancestors. The people that we said, once I've grown and I'm out of here, I'm going to do things different. Until you find yourself repeating the same things that your family did. So let's talk about the 11th son, Joseph, if you will. And we all know that Joseph would eventually get into the kingdom or the palace of, of Potiphar. And he would help this man's dreams come to pass. His daddy, named Jacob, who became Israel, was a man that loved his son. Especially because... He came from Rachel, his true love. Leah was all right. <laughs> the maidservants were all right. But nobody shined like Rachel. And so when Joseph comes on, he is the favored child. Come on, somebody. You know the story of the providence of God. And so I want to talk to you tonight about, first of all, the grain of eventuality. In fact, write that down, it means direction. That eventually, God will bring you into direction. Notice, if you will, the providence of God. When we read out of Genesis chapter 37, the incredible story of Joseph, my Bible hero, the 11th son of Jacob, who is loved by his father, who wears a loud coat of many colors, so loud that you would almost have to ask him, do you have a volume control for that coat? 
It's such a bright and colorful coat. It's louder than anything that we've gotten. And so he is hated by his brothers, and the spirit of jealousy is there. He is not only uh, uh, favored, but he's a dreamer. And every time he closes his eyes, he's dreaming something. And God's just giving him, and he's got a big mouth because he goes around and tells everybody, this is what God showed me. Isn't it, isn't it uh, sometimes irritating when you haven't heard anything from the Lord in a minute, and all of a sudden, here comes Sister Hoopendiddle and Brother Hurricane or whoever. And they always seem to have a word from the Lord. And you're like, well, God didn't speak to me like that. But there's some people uh, that just all the time are putting their stuff out there, their business out there. And that's kind of how I think that Joseph's brothers viewed him. Here come that dreamer. And we look at his first recorded dream in Genesis 37 and 7, where the Bible said, Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheep. So he was hated even more, the Bible said, for the dreams that he had and for the words that he had. And if that wasn't enough, he had the audacity to share with them yet another dream. And the Bible says in verse 9, and he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brethren and said, Behold, I've dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars have made obeisance to me. So when I'm talking tonight about the rain or the grain of eventuality or the grain of direction, you have to understand that Joseph is just telling what he's seeing. This is what's come to me. This is what I feel God's leading me to. This is the direction I think I'm going to to lead in. I don't know how it's going to happen. don't know where it's going to happen. But I just have this in me. These dreams just feel like I was there. I saw it. And you know what his dad did when he heard the dream? The Bible said that he rebuked him for his dreams. He was rebuked by his father. He was envied by his brothers who uh, just were already upset with him because of the favor that was upon him. So Jacob sends Joseph off to Shechem to check on his brothers who were out feeding the flock. And they're actually not in Shechem. They end up in Dothan. And here they see Joseph coming down the path. And they see him and they conspire to kill him, full of rage, full of hatred. Have you ever just been minding your business and you can't please nobody? Some people hate you because they ain't you. You couldn't please them. Even Jesus couldn't pastor them. Come on, somebody. And they just hated on him, full of rage and hatred. And they begin to mock him. And they said, here comes that dreamer. And the Bible said that they stripped him of his coat, which represented the favor of his father. And they threw him into a pit to entrap him with no water, no refreshment. No way to minister unto himself. And then they sell him to a company of Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. Can I tell you that some folks will sell you out for their own glory. They will sell you out for their own gratification. They don't know the value of covenant relationship. And the Bible said that they put the blood of a goat up on his coat. This is why I know that they tried to bloody his favor because goats will always try to bloody your favor goats will always try to make you look bad goats will buck you 
when you're not looking. Come on, somebody. Goats are stubborn. Do you know any goats in the house or maybe in your family or something? I just want you to understand that's how goats operate. And Jacob, when he hears the news of his son, he rends his clothes and he puts sackcloth upon himself. He would not eat. He mourned for many days and he refused to be comforted. And the Bible said that Joseph goes on down and he is sold into slavery and he lands in Potiphar's house and he excels everything that he touches. He is prosperous, everything that he touches. You see, they took the coat off of him on the outside, but he had wore it long enough that what was on the outside was on the inside. It don't matter how many people bloody your favor, bloody you, and try to make you look bad. If you are who you are in Jesus... You don't even have to have a front row seat. You don't have to have a parking lot reserved. You can sit in the very back and just know that I am my father's son and I am called of the Lord. I don't know how many people try to bloody your favor and put blood on you, but can I tell you if the favor of God is upon you, God will bless you coming in and bless you going out and your enemy can't stop the hand and the favor of God that is upon your life. God will exalts you because he's given you direction. Potiphar's wife tried to trap him, accuse him of rape, lied on him, and off Joseph goes to the next season of his life for 17 years. He spends time, in, or he's 17 when he is sold into, gone into prison. And the Bible says that for 13 years he remains in this area, in this region. While he's there, he begins to excel. He begins to interpret dreams for people. They brought before Pharaoh Joseph so that he could interpret a dream that Pharaoh had of seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, Joseph would reveal to him. And because he revealed to him through the truth, Potiphar, or excuse me, Pharaoh, who's not even a godly man, who is a pagan, awards Joseph this favored child, the 11th son of Jacob, and gives him a new ring to wear, a gold chain, a new coat, a new chariot, and Pharaoh's daughter. He gets the whole package. I mean, he gets the whole deal, and he's made prime minister of Egypt at age 30. When God touched him, he was giving him the grain of direction, eventuality. Here's the second thing I want to talk about. The grain of ingenuity, which is perception. Most of us understand what perception is. When you're able to see a thing, when you're able to perceive a thing, have you ever walked into a room and perceived that there was arguing going on before you got there? Have you ever been in a situation where God gave you insight and showed you the manner of what was or the spirit of how things were? And... Joseph is given a perception, an ingenuity, where God teaches him to gather food for seven years uh, by the handful and gather corn like he would the sand of the sea that was without number. And during this time of which he is administrating this pagan Pharaoh, God is elevating him and he is having he is doing life and the bible says that he gives birth or his wife gives birth to two children he has the son named manasseh 
whose means name means God calls me to forget all that I went through, all that my family put me through. God calls me to forget, and maybe you're here tonight, and God wants to move you into a Manasseh season where you can get, finally get past all the mess folks tried to put you through. And then he has another son by the name of Ephraim. And he said, God calls me to be fruitful in my affliction. Maybe that's where God is blessing you right now, where you're becoming fruitful in all that you've gone through. And then we know that seven years of famine begins, but it does not hinder Egypt because there was bread in the house. There was bread because God had given ingenuity to a man by the name of Joseph. And Joseph opens up the storehouses and all the countries come to Egypt to buy corn and to buy grain. And we understand in the story that even Jacob, finally, they, it's reached him and his family, this famine and this poverty. And he goes down with his children, sends his children down to buy corn out of Egypt. By the time this happens, Joseph... Joseph is about 39 years old when his brothers come down. Ten go down into Egypt, but Benjamin, the youngest, stays behind. And Joseph recognizes his brothers, and he recognizes the dream when he sees them walking up that dusty trail. He recognizes the dream that God had one time given him of, of his brothers bowing down before him. And so they did not recognize him. And in the plot twist of how things happen. He accuses them of being spies and they confess, we're not spies. We came down here to buy food and Joseph has them locked up and he says, send one of you to get your youngest brother so we can verify this story. And they become convicted as they remember what they did to Joseph and now they feel that their past is catching up with them. Joseph overhears them speaking, and the Bible said that he's moved to tears. You see, when God changes your name, he changes the way you view people. He ties up Simeon, and he fills their sacks with corn, and he hides their own money back into the sacks. They return to Canaan, and they tell their father, Jacob, all that had happened and how they're now required to bring Benjamin, or Simeon will die in prison. He will not escape. Jacob said, I'm not going to lose my baby. I've already lost Joseph. But time has a way where they lost and ate up all the food they had gotten from Egypt. And Jacob has no choice now but to send them back to buy more. And this time, he sends Benjamin. It is estimated that nearly two years has passed. They take double the money to pay for the corn. They present their money. They present their gifts to Joseph. And Joseph sees Benjamin, and he has to leave the room. He is overwhelmed. I've not seen my brother. He has so many emotions. He comes back into the room. He sits down, and he dines with them. And Joseph, who is numeric, begins to place them and seat them by age around the room. And as this is happening, the Bible says that he blesses each brother with a portion. But when he gets to Benjamin, he gives him five times as much. 
And there's something to understand here because five is considered to be the number of grace. And when you take five and multiply itself to five, you get 25, which literally means, according to John 1, 16, that you get grace upon grace. Even the Ten Commandments contains two sets of five. The first five deal with our treatment and our relationship with God. The last five deal with our relationship with other folks. And then there are the five types of offerings. The burnt offering, the sin offering, the trespass, the grain offering, the peace offering. There are five gifts given in the church. The apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher. David had five stones. There were five wise virgins. We could go on and on and talk about the fives. And God had given a blessing unto Benjamin, a five times blessing. And I want you to hear this because I truly believe that God is giving one life the ingenuity for the season that is coming to you, which you may not clearly see it, but if you can perceive it, if you can see it by faith, if you can see it through the Spirit, then God will not only give you five, He'll give you a five-fold blessing that will come to you even when it looks like everything around you is tied up and, and locked down. God says, watch me work in the middle of what you're going through. God will help you see your way through it. Which brings me to the third grain. The grain of apology. The grain of vindication. Woo, I'm preaching what I've lived. They still don't know who Joseph is. And Joseph sends them on their way, but he tricks them again. He still had a little Jacob in him. He tricks him again. And he puts their money in the sacks and his silver cup in Benjamin's sack, according to Genesis 44. And they are accused now of stealing. And Joseph said, for your punishment, I will keep your youngest brother as my servant. And Joseph knows that they will do anything to take their brother Benjamin back to their father. And Judah stands up and pleads with Joseph to the point that Joseph weeps out loud. And he has everyone leave the room. And everyone has left the room except his brothers. And he looks at them in Genesis 45 and he says, I am Joseph. I am the brother that you sold into slavery but God sent me ahead of you to make life for you what you meant for evil God meant for good and catch this the Bible says they fell upon each other weeping there will come a time in the process that those that have wronged you God will bring them back and it'll go from a wrong to a weep. And there will be a weeping that will take place. There will be an apology. I feel like this for somebody here. Here's the fourth, and it's the grain of plenty or the grain of restoration. Joseph tells them after he's revealed who he is, go get your father and bring everyone and everything to Egypt for they shall eat of the fat of the land for the next five years. He gave them wagons full of provision to take to their father. He gave them a change of clothes. But to Benjamin, 
he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of raiment. Joseph had been sold for 20 pieces of silver earlier in his life, but he gives Benjamin 300 pieces of silver. God is more than enough. Listen to this. The brothers return home to Canaan and they declare to daddy, Joseph is yet alive, daddy. He's yet alive. And Jacob could hardly believe it. But the Bible said that his spirit is revived. God is a God of restoration. He goes from fainting to reviving. That's what restoration can do. And I just want to say this to anybody out there listening, maybe watching this later, for anybody who points their bony, pretentious finger at other people, the Bible says in Galatians 6.1 that if we see our brother overtaken in a fault, we which are spiritual ought to restore such a one with the spirit of meekness and consider our own self lest we're tempted with the same thing. How many of you have had people look over their glasses funny at you as if you're the worst sinner and yet they've got a whole closet full of mess in their own life? Restoration will take you from fainting to reviving. And so Joseph brings his entire family down into the land of Goshen and his family is restored. And they are provided for during the famine because of the grain in Egypt. And that brings me to number five. They move from the grain of plenty now to the grain of posterity. Everybody say generation. The grain that God brings them into. And I think I spelled that wrong. It's posterity, not prosperity. Joseph is reunited with his, his father. And they fall upon each other, father and son, and they embrace. His posterity is secured. Now listen to this. Many years ago, God helped us begin a journey of staff in our church and people who were coming alongside us and helping us. We came to Indianapolis in 1999. We thought everybody was going to love us. We were coming with dreams and visions, and we just thought this is going to be a great experience. Within three to six months, we found out that our board was talking about us behind our back. I couldn't hardly believe it. I just believe that Christians don't behave like that. Saints of God don't act ugly. We were in the middle of a renovation of the church parsonage and I had people come to me and say, Pastor, we can't go back and work in the parsonage because they're, they're over there talking about you. Oh, I was the youngest person in the room when we had that board meeting and I remember asking them, why were you talking about me behind my back? I just think that you ought to deal with stuff. And they looked at me and they said, we're going to run this church. We just want you to preach. And I'm telling you, the boldness come up in me that I didn't know I had. I said, there's only one pastor here and you're looking at him. But if you want the job, tell me now. You know what they did? They resigned on the spot. But they stayed with us for a year so they could be a cantankerous thorn 
in the flesh. I found that these people travel in twos. You will always find the ringleader and their sidekick. Now, they're not here because this is a Sunday night church and those folks wouldn't even be here. But they may be watching. I don't know your business. I just feel such liberty. They travel in twos. Stayed with us for a year. We overcame that. They left and God added the church. I'm never one that tries to say, well, God's weeding them out, brother. I don't know that he's always weeding them out, but I do believe he does do that. But I also believe sometimes he moves people from the bus to another seat so to make room for somebody else in a different position. And I've learned in our short time of pastoring that you have to lead with an open hand and not a closed fist. And I'm of a persuasion and a personality as my mom and daddy hail from the Appalachian Mountains of Eastern Kentucky. We love everybody, or at least we try to. We're going to love you even if you don't love us. And I could hardly believe that people would act like this in a church when they said to me they wanted to grow. When they said to me, Pastor, we're behind you. Don't ever tell your pastor you're behind them. Because if you stand behind them, that's where you can point. Tell them, I'm with you. I'm with you, Pastor. We went through that season, and then we, God began to grow the church, and all these great things began to happen. We began to do building programs and staff enlargement. And I really, in, our, in my Pentecostal circle of reference, I didn't have a lot of people that I could talk to had ever pastored more than 50 people or 100 people. Didn't understand how you hire and sometimes have to fire. Ooh, it's quiet. Didn't understand. I just knew that in professionalism as a pastor and ministerial etiquette, I could not stand up and tell all the ugly that this person has doing in the church or the affairs they were involved in or the money they were stealing. I couldn't tell all of the business. I just had to preach and get up every Sunday when I was in pain and I was hurting and people talk about me like I was a dirty dish ray and I had to maintain my composure when people in the congregation would come and say, Pastor, what's up with so and so? And I couldn't tell them because I wanted to give those people time to repent and make the crooked path straight and it was a pain painful process. It's painful when you go through hardship. It's painful when people talk about you and you cannot defend yourself. But I know there is a God who, who sits high and he looks low and he's mindful. And when I could not speak and when I could not tell what needed to be told, I had to rely on the great hand of God. That God would bring vi vision and God would bring direction. Went through a long season. We had a spiritual son that had been with us who we thought was a spiritual son. Had been with us for 10 years. And I'd had pastor friends say, how have you had staff so long? I just thought we're just tearing it up for the Lord. And then our trouble began. Had found out that they were milly-mouthing in the congregation, lying, saying things that weren't true, talking about my wife behind her back. We are paying them. And they're talking about us. How do you do that? Oh, it's a dangerous thing. My mom and daddy taught me, don't you ever put your hand or your mouth on a man or woman of God. If they're wrong, God will deal with them. But don't you invite that upon you. We had to go through all kinds of mess. 
we lost 60 people in the middle of that because they were all friends with this person because you know how people travel together. And of course, they all unfriended us on the glorious Facebook, but were friends with everyone they had come to know through our leadership. People will spite you. You better know what spirit you're involved with and who you entertain. Woo, it's quiet in here. We came through that. It was about three years it took me. I wanted to quit. I wanted to quit. God, I've never done anybody this way. Why are they doing this to me? I've tried to treat people good. And it's sad. We paid them for 10 years, loved on them like our own children, but poured on them every blessing we possibly could, only for them to say they felt they were mistreated. I thought to myself, if you were so mistreated, why'd you stay for 10 years? Sometimes people don't see that. That's my buddy. That's my BFF. That's my ride or die. That's my friend. But they don't know what you've had to contend with behind the scenes. Man, I did not even plan on sharing this, but I'm going to share it. I was so hurt, finally, I started getting victory. And I started getting my joy back. I told the Lord one night, I'll never, ever be a spiritual father again. I'm done. I will never pour myself into somebody again. Had a meeting that night at the church, after church, as tradition has it for a lot of us church-going people, we went to eat afterward. <laughs> On my way to the restaurant, after I just told God, never again, I get a phone call from a young man in the church who said, Pastor, will you be my spiritual father? I said, isn't that just like God? <laughs> to mess you up, never say never. My heart broke. Somewhere, somehow, something within me, even while he was on the phone, I'm weeping in the, in the truck. Something in me said, you do what I called you to do. It was after that that a few guys had went with me to South Carolina to a conference. And there was a bishop up there preaching. And I mean, he was reading my mail. Woo, he was preaching. And... He's talking about a fatherless generation, and he talked about the pain of being orphaned, being betrayed, rejected, unwanted, and he called upon us to release our hurts. I'm there as a pastor with some of the men of our church. I'm still hurting, and I really can't talk about it. I want to talk about it. But at that time, I did not have the covenant relationships I do now. And I fell on the floor, got underneath the pew. I got under the pew. And I began to weep. And said, God, I don't know why this has happened to me. I know I'm the only one that's gone through stuff like this. But God, it hurts. And I heard the Lord say, release the hurt. And God said to me, under that pew, he said, do you remember Joseph? 
that what he went through, God sent him ahead to position for provision. And then he said to me, there's a famine out there. And he called it a fatherless generation. And that's been my bread and butter for years. God had called me to father and son relationship. And he told me and showed me up on the property of our church, big grain silos everywhere. And we're in the city. And there were these grain silos filled with grain. And they were overflowing. And God said this to me. He said, because of the grain, sons would come for resources. And he said, you will have two types of sons in your ministry. Now listen to this. He said, you will have the sons of Leah and you will have the sons of Rachel. And then he said something I didn't really want to hear. He said, you are to feed them both. He told me that the sons of Leah would get what they wanted and they would leave. But the sons of Rachel would remain. And he said, and you will give them a five-fold blessing. He showed me in great depth of why I had been through what I had been through for the last several years. Why Beverly and I had wept and almost resigned and almost quit. And he said, favor is on your life. He said, see those silos of grain. And I mean, it was so strong. When my coat was stolen, when goat's blood was put upon me, people lied about me. I got, forgot my hanky. I'll get El Cheapo over here. People lied, said stuff that weren't true, and I wanted so badly to de defend myself and come down off the wall. God said, I will restore to you. During that three-year process, about three or four months had passed since the Lord had spoke to me underneath the pew at a church in South Carolina of thousands of people, and God spoke to me. I left there different. I left there different. I felt like that he was changing something in me. I was able to release some stuff. A man came to our church who was a pastor from another state. I had shared nothing with nobody. This was all right here. A young couple in our church was getting married, and they asked me to officiate and this other pastor friend. And because I didn't put two and two together, I would normally have had the pastor friend speak in our pulpit that weekend. But because of this and that, I, I was the one speaking and we were in the middle of praise and worship, and we were praising God on the front row. And they were really, it was getting so rich and so good and so full. And my pastor friend leaned over to me and said, I don't know if, why God told me to tell you this, but he told me to tell you there is grain in this house. And I began to weep as God confirmed his word. And I'm telling you, the rain of grain is going to overflow your life. And what Joseph went through, it may not be as bad or it may even be worse, but God has a way of positioning you to bring you restoration, to bring you healing.
It has gotten to the point now that the people who acted like a cray-cray, I don't understand why they did it. But now I have even come to a place where sometimes I even forget what they did. God has restored. Sometimes you'll see people, especially in ministry, if you pastor a church, you'll see these people at funerals and weddings, and you're thinking, oh, no. I don't want to deal with that attitude. Thank God I don't have to deal with that anymore. But when you can see them and there's nothing in you, nothing but blessing and nothing but good, then you have learned what God wanted to teach you. Feed the sons of Leah. Feed the sons of Rachel and keep your grain flowing out of your house, in your marriage, in your relationships, in your ministry. Keep the silos full of grain. Be true to the objective and the directive that God has for you. Would you stand to your feet tonight? Holy Spirit, I ask for the next few moments of time that a healing and a realization that all that we've gone through is for a purpose would visit with us tonight. That your spirit would have full reign over every part of us. That what we've gone through does not define us. Even looking back and wishing we had made better decisions, by faith we were walking forward, doing the best we knew. And God, I'm asking you to bring healing to every leader in this house. Every person that's ever been wounded by friendly fire, that's ever been talked about, that's ever had to deal with hurt feelings. Oh God, we're not wearing our feelings out on our sleeve. We know that we must be tough enough to keep on living the faith-filled life. But God, even when we are hurting and wounded you love us enough because you're the God that gave us these emotions we 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 understand that and yet we won't let them rule us but at the same token you understand the things that we feel and I prophesy Lord through your name that grain will fall upon your people that the silos of plenty will be there that everything that we've gone through and endured, even in our ministry or our personal life, it will not take away. Even in the time of the famine, there will be enough grain for us to feed others. That what you brought me through wasn't just for me. It was for those coming behind me. And I want my children, I want my grandchildren, I want my people to have a sense of knowing that, God, it was all worth it. That they, we didn't quit when things got hard. We didn't throw in the towel. We didn't yield ourselves over to that spirit of Antichrist. We allowed you to do your work in us so that you could do your work through us. So I stand here before you tonight to tell you that I've lived what I've preached. And God has gotten the victory through my life. Beverly and I have had to endure many afflictions. We've had to war a good warfare and fight the good fight of faith so that we could seize and lay hold to eternal life. Don't you let people take away the grain God gave you. Let him use you. If you're here tonight and maybe you've gone through some horrible things or maybe it's just been a passing thing or maybe you've just not been able to heal 
from the wound that cuts so deep. Why did they do that? Why did they do this? God, I don't know that I can get past it. I hear the Lord say that not only will you get past it, it will be a testimony of your faith. And you will help someone else. If you're here tonight, I want you to come and find you a place in this altar to pray and ask God to restore the grain in your house where wounds have haunted and where there has been hurt feelings. Ask God to fill the house with grain in your life. Father, we thank you for that. We honor you for that. And we thank you for your confirmed word in our life. Father, we honor you in Jesus' name.